It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt? And for all the little piggies, life is getting worse. A new California law requires the humane treatment of pigs. But pork producers say the greatest impact of the law would be outside California, threatening the $26 billion a year pork industry. At oral arguments this week, the question of one state imposing its moral values on another was a key concern for the justices, one that cut across ideological lines. Here's Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Elena Kagan and Neil Gorsuch. Under your analysis, uh, it's California's view of morality that prevails over the views of people in other states because of the market power that they have. You know, do we want to live in a world where we're constantly at each other's throats and, um, you know, Texas is at war with California and California at war with Texas? As I understand California's position charitably, it's that Californians, 63 percent of them, voted for this law. They don't wish to have California be complicit, even indirectly, in in, in livestock practices that they find abhorrent, wherever they occur. My guest is Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Hal, tell us about this California law that hasn't even gone into effect yet. The law says that California will not import pork products if the breeder pigs or the sows have been placed in inhumane conditions. And most breeding sows are kept in little crates that can't even turn around. Well, California's law has a huge impact outside of the state. Only about 0.13% of all pork in this country is raised in California, and yet California consumes 13% of pork in the nation. And so with that kind of dramatic impact is that this regulation will increase the price of pork across the country because pork producers can't segregate their pigs. They have to have their pigs all usually together, and the products are usually intermingled, and so therefore be very expensive to segregate 
pig raising for just the California market as opposed to the rest of the country. Now, that's debated. We haven't had any fact-finding on is it going to be a 5% raise in prices, 3%, 10%, but there will be some increased expense across the country because of this regulation. The pork producers claim the law violates the dormant commerce clause. Tell me how that argument goes. So the court is very used to challenges that certain state regulations violate the dormant commerce clause. They have been not hospitable to those in the past because there's a tension between states trying to help their own citizens, but also putting a damper on commerce out of the state. And they traditionally have said that the state cannot enact a protectionist measure and a state cannot discriminate explicitly against commerce from another state. But as long as it's good faith regulation internally within the state, that that should survive any kind of dormant commerce clause challenge. This case is a little different. And so I think the court struggled with it because on the one hand, you're trying to protect the sensibilities of California by saying we only will allow humanely slaughtered pigs to enter into the market. And that's a different kind of claim than we've seen in the past. And it clearly has some kind of significant burden on out-of-state commerce because over 99% of all pig farming takes place outside of California. The pork producers say the law unlawfully regulates farmers in other states, but those farmers don't have to sell their pork in California. They don't, but California, because of its size, has 13% of the market. And so states like New York, California, and Texas have a disproportionate impact upon commerce in the United States. And so producers have to listen to what those three states in particular say and so they have an outsized impact on the market. That being said, it is clear that if California banned all importation of pork because of perceived health reasons into the state of California, that would survive any kind of Commerce Clause challenge. So the interesting issue here, and I think one that we split the court, is if a ban is okay under the Constitution, why isn't the lesser step of a certification that the pigs were slaughtered under humane conditions, why shouldn't that also be constitutional? And explain why a ban works when this halfway measure might not. Because the Supreme Court has recognized that for legitimate health reasons and safety reasons, states can take action to protect their citizens. So as long as there is a good faith belief that pig meat would be unhealthy for you know, reasons of whether it's cholesterol or reasons of disease to citizens of California, and that that kind of disease can impact the material well-being of its citizens, then California has every right to ban the importation of pork. Indeed, California just recently has banned importation of several types of cosmetics and other kinds of food additives for those very reasons. So an outright ban, I think, is clearly constitutional. It can be overruled by Congress, but until Congress does that, a ban is fine. And so the question is whether this lesser step of certification based upon values is constitutional or in the alternative, does it open a Pandora's box of where Texas and California will have a feud on morality and each enact laws you know, suggesting that products from the other state are immoral because of labor practices, abortion practices, or whatever. Yeah, that seemed to be a concern of a lot of the justices. Here's Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Could you have California pass a law that said we're not going to buy any pork from companies that don't require all their employees to be vaccinated or from corporations that don't 
fun, gender-affirming surgery or that sort of thing. So it was sort of the parade of horribles. What could happen? I think that's right. And I think this case gives rise to that kind of parade of horribles, as you suggest, far more so than any case the court has seen, which gives rise to at least if I had to make a prediction that the court is going to find some kind of narrow way to reverse the Ninth Circuit holding in favor of California and set it back for some additional proceedings, perhaps based upon the strength of the showing that each party can make about, on the one hand, what kind of health benefits for California citizens may accrue from this kind of humane treatment measure. On the other hand, what kind of economic impact this California regulation may cause the pork producers. In other words, it could be something like a trial at a lower court level? That, that would be my, my guess. And often in uh, dormant commerce clause cases, there has to be some kind of rough balancing test. And the courts sometimes don't like these rough balancing tests, but it has to do with some kind of comparison to the, the strength of the state showing of health and safety measures for their citizens as opposed to the impact, economic impact um, across the country of the regulation. But the whole, the whole moral values component or overlay in this case is something that the court um, has never confronted before. And indeed, that's why, you know, Justice Barrett and others, um, Sotomayor, were, were concerned about it, is that to have a one-state legislate kind of morals with respect to out-of-state residents does open this can of worms. And the court, I think, is may try to, if it, if it can't avoid it, it may just say that it has to be, that the state can take legitimate measures, but it has to be based on something else than sort of looking askance at the morals or values of what takes place in a different state. So Chief Justice John Roberts said, but under your analysis, it's California's view of morality that prevails over the views of people in other states because of the market power that they have. Well, that's what America's about, isn't it? Market power? Uh, Well, it is, and it may seem to be a fine line to say that market power can uh, affect, let's say, emissions of cars um, as opposed to humane treatment of pigs. Um, But I think there is a line there, and that's where this issue has been so controversial before is for California's uh, regulation of car emissions and other kinds of carbon emissions, uh, because California's been far more strict than the rest of the country, and the rest of the country says, well, we want to do business in California, therefore we have to adopt stricter measures. Um, And there, though, the tie between those kinds of pro-environmental measures and the health and welfare of California citizens is relatively clearly established. When you're just talking about feeling better knowing that pigs were slaughtered in a more humane fashion, or at least kept in a more humane fashion, That's probably a more difficult pill to swallow. Thanks, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krant of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. A copyright clash over Andy Warhol's silkscreen portraits of Prince took the justices into an area that could reshape the fair use defense to copyright infringement for follow-on works affecting music, videos, and books, as well as Warhol's pop art. In oral arguments, the justices grapple with a photographer's claim that Warhol violated her copyright by basing his images on her 1981 photograph of Prince. My guest is Sham Balganesh, a professor at Columbia Law School and an expert on intellectual property law. Explain the issue here. So at its most basic, the case is about the question of the circumstance under which an artist who relies on a copyrighted work to produce his own work of art can invoke the fair use doctrine to avoid copyright infringement. That in the abstract is what the case was about. And specifically, it involves the situation where Andy Warhol had made without authorization under the terms of the license, additional pieces of art from a photograph taken by Lynn Goldsmith of the famous musician Prince. So the sequence of events really begins in 1981 when the famed photographer Lynn Goldsmith makes the decision to take photographs of of an up-and-coming musician at the time, Prince. And she does this for Newsweek, which eventually doesn't use her photograph. It uses another photograph of hers from Prince in concert. But She takes a whole bunch of different photographs of Prince in 1981. And then uh, a few years later, uh, in 1984, after Prince and Purple Rain have become this acclaimed piece of music, basically Vanity Fair decides to run a story on Prince, and they approach Goldsmith for what is called an artist reference, asking for permission to use one of her photographs for an artist to make an illustration that they will run in their story. So they enter into a license with Goldsmith for the use of one of her photographs for this story. And unknown to her at the time, Vanity Fair has already entered into an arrangement with Andy Warhol to do this piece of illustration. Now, under the terms of the license in 1984, he was allowed to make one piece of art or illustration for the story, which, and under the terms no other uses and a certain amount of compensation, 
was to be paid to her. But what Andy Warhol did, which again doesn't become known until many years after, he makes 15 additional pieces of art, additional work. However, only one of them is published in the November 1984 Vanity Fair publication eventually. Then what happens after Prince dies in 2016, Vanity Fair decides to run another article and they get in touch with the Andy Warhol Foundation and they learn that there are these additional prints and they license from the Andy Warhol Foundation another one of these pieces that were made by Andy Warhol. And when Goldsmith learns of that, she says, hold on, that's beyond the terms of the original license. That's a copyright infringement. And the Andy Warhol Foundation says, no, in fact, it was fair use, invoking the precedent of the Supreme Court from 1994, which had said that under certain circumstances, if a fair use injects new meaning or new character and new purpose into the work, it can qualify as something called a transformative use, and that would take it out of the gamut of a copyright infringement. The district court finds for the Andy Warhol Foundation. The Second Circuit reverses, saying it wasn't a fair use even under the transformative use doctrine, and the matter ends up in the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court taking the case is very much an attempt to interpret how its 1994 precedent would apply to the circumstances of the Warhol dispute with Goldsmith. I remember that the Second Circuit chided the district court and said judges shouldn't be art critics. How will the Supreme Court decide this case without being an art critic and looking at the two works? You know, it's an interesting question because in some ways that was front and center during the oral argument. One of the questions that the justices were grappling with on both sides was how exactly do you operationalize the standard that the 1994 precedent, the opinion written by Justice Souter, uh, had come up with, which is the question of does the defendant's work add new meaning? Does it add a new purpose? Is it of a different character? What does it mean to say that you're adding new meaning in your use? Should we just rely on what the artist comes in and says new meaning? Should we rely on experts? Should the judge do it themselves? Now, here's what Justice Souter had intended in 1994, if you look at the Campbell opinion carefully. He's very aware of the fact that he doesn't want judges to sit as art critics. This actually goes back to a uh, proposition in copyright law called aesthetic neutrality, which dates back to Justice Holmes, where the idea is that judges should not be the ones who are deciding on the quality of a work, even when it's eligible for copyright law. And Justice Souter says, look, I'm aware of that. I don't want judges to sit in judgment over the quality of the work under the test that I'm developing. However, I need to have an objective standard to figure out whether there is a new commentary or new meaning or new purpose in terms of how we classify it. To give you a clear example so that it doesn't sound too abstract, in Campbell versus Acuff Rose, the question was, was the defendant's use a legitimate parody? And Justice Souter says, I'm not going to delve into whether it's a good parody or a bad parody, whether it makes me laugh, whether it in fact was accurate. All I need to assess in order to come to the conclusion that it was capable of qualifying as a transformative use under one component of the first factors, whether it was indeed a parody. So it can't just be something that is not indeed invoking the parodic purpose in any way or form. That's different from judging the quality of the work. I think that's a very, very thin line. It's, it's a line that's hard to police as you move away from established categories like parody. And that's really what the court is going to grapple with. Should we defer to the artist about injecting new meaning and new style, in which case every artist who makes minor modifications, in fact, that was some of the hypotheticals that uh, I think it was Chief Justice Roberts threw into the argument. He said, what if I put a little smiley face 
on a photograph. Would that qualify as new meaning? Is that what we mean by new meaning under the transformative test? Whose word should we take? I think it was another justice who said, okay, if I just change one of the colors from blue to yellow, it may seem very minor, but you bring in an art expert, they will tell you how yellow and blue have very different meaning uh, in the art world. So whose word are we to rely on? And I think that was front and center, and that's the reason why this is a tough case. I think Justice Kagan made a reference to this, but Andy Warhol is known for transformative art, for changing the meaning of, you know, a box of Brillo or a Campbell's soup can into art. So how do you judge that? Some people look at this and say he really transformed that photo of Prince. Well, so I guess this gets down to the question of, so there are two things. First, I think it's important to recognize that any standard that the court comes up with has to apply beyond the Andy Warhols of the world, right? So, so we have to disaggregate the fact that we now, in hindsight, and this also came up at oral argument, you know, many years later, after Andy Warhol has become known for a certain style, we look back and say, oh, Warhol left his imprint on this piece of art. But at the time, was it known in that way? And should we defer to what every artist says their individual style is? But I think there's a second component there, which is even if you look at it and you say he has transformed it in some way or form, I think it's important to recognize one component, which was something that the justices jumped into right away. One of the rights that copyright grants a creator, an author, is the right to make derivative works. And the definition of a derivative in the copyright statute, Section 101, uses the the word transform. So it says a work that transforms the underlying content is a derivative work, and the exclusive right to make a derivative work is vested with the author. So transformations are not automatically as a category to be treated as fair use. In fact, Congress had intended that transformations of a certain kind are to go to the copyright creator because that's the nature of the derivative works right. And and the court in its oral argument offered a whole set of examples that would qualify as basic transformations. So, for example, transforming a novel into a screenplay for a movie is a transformation. But it's not the same as saying it's a transformative use. And so that's exactly the debate in this case, which is where do you draw the line between a simple transformation that constitutes a derivative work? And when is it such that we might say it's so transformative as to take it outside of the context of the original work such that it adds new meaning and new character and a new purpose, such as to make it a transformative use? And I think this is the reason why it's important to see that the ramifications of this case are well beyond Andy Warhol, who we now associate with a distinctive style, right? Tomorrow, if an artist comes in and says, I'm making some minor modifications, that's my unique style, the test has to, in theory, be able to accommodate in some way or form, either for or against, that particular claim. So do you think the justices will be able to come up with a test that lower courts can use in every circumstance? I think they're going to very much try. I think one of the messages during the entire course of the oral argument was the problems in the workability of the prior test, figuring out the contours and boundaries of it. If I had to to read the tea leaves, I think the justices are going to try and split the difference, come up with a workable test that gives a little bit more content contextually and expands on what Campbell versus Acuff Rose said in 1994 without getting rid of that doctrine altogether. And at the same time, thinking beyond just the narrow category that was before the court in Campbell. So I think the court is going to very much try and come up with a workable test. In fact, you know, where we saw this during the oral argument, the last few minutes of the Solicitor General's intervention on behalf of the United States, the whole back and forth was 
on what kind of language should we use to delineate a test. And one of the questions that the justices were grappling with uh, was this question of, should one of the limitations on the invocation of this doctrine be that the use of the original was necessary or essential or useful to the creation of this secondary work? In other words, should that be a limitation? If, for instance, Warhol could have used any other photograph of Prince, should that matter? Or should the claim be that Warhol really needed to use this particular photograph of Prince, which is one of the claims you know, that, that Goldsmith says she was trying to portray Prince as being vulnerable and shy, and Warhol was trying to capture something different in contrast to that. So the question of necessity versus essential versus useful was all around what specific language should an opinion use. And I think a couple of the justices were pushing the person arguing on behalf of the United States to come up with workable language. So I think that's going to be very much front and center on how the court approaches its decision in this case. So do you think the court will decide whether or not Warhol's work is copyright infringement, or they'll leave that to a lower court? I think if I, if I had to see what the focus of the entire argument was, I think to a large extent the court spent most of its time figuring out one of the four fair use factors, which is the question of transformative. I think there was also a discussion of whether there was a sufficiently well-developed factual record on the rest of the fair use factor so as to allow the court to decide or whether, regardless of what it does on the first factor, it should send it back down to the lower court to develop the record further on those factors. If I had to guess, again, looking at the court's tendency from its oral argument, which is always hard to discern any patterns, but if one one word to, to surmise, the court wants to split the difference. I think it's very likely that it will offer some conclusions and clarity on the most controversial aspect of this case, which is the first factor, which was really what the petitioner had focused on. What does it mean for something to be transformative? What test should we use? And then send it back to the lower court to actually decide in accordance with its newly developed and potentially workable formulation. So I know you filed an amicus brief. Which side were you on? We were on the Goldsmith side. I filed an amicus brief along with uh, Professor Peter Manel at Berkeley and uh, my colleague Professor Jane Ginsburg here at Columbia. And our amicus brief focused on talking a little bit about the legislative history of the fair use doctrine and the evolution of the specific language that is today in the copyright statute. And then the other thing that our amicus brief did was to, to tell the court to not just focus on a couple of words from the 1994 Campbell decision. The point that we make to the court is you should look at how Justice Souter actually applied the language that everyone quotes from to the facts of the case before him. And when you do that, you see a certain amount of nuance on how he makes these precise judgment calls that the court is having a hard time figuring out what kind of rubric and metric he applies to avoid judging the quality of the work while at the same time making sure it's not a sham that's trying to pretend to add new meaning. So that's what our amicus brief uh, focused on, to really try and tell the court that, look, there's a way of looking at what Campbell did rather than just what Campbell said. Thank you so much. That's Professor Sham Balganesh of Columbia Law School. Most users of the judiciary's PACER electronic court records platform will receive refunds for fees they incurred under a $125 million settlement agreement between nonprofits and the U.S. government. And there may be more changes ahead if Congress passes legislation to eliminate all fees for access to court documents. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. Describe what the PACER system is. 
So PACER is the electronic system that people use to access court records, and that could be attorneys, uh, that could be people interested in the litigation, and it charges users for each page or each search that they do kind of based on the amount of pages that pulls up. So users have to pay after they hit a certain amount, but it's, it's generally the system that the public uses to access court records. The judiciary made a lot of money off this system, about $150 million in fees annually on average. So the judiciary has disclosed that it, it makes about 150 on this. It says that's primarily from, from larger corporate users that, that use the system. But some of those fees do come from, from the public. And those fees were what was at stake in, in this lawsuit. Those were the question in this lawsuit against PACER. And what was the judiciary using those fees for? So some of the things the judiciary was using this for was certain technology projects that it wasn't supposed to. Um, and that was what the district court found. And then the appellate court said they, they got it right. Tell us what the district court found. This has been going on for six years. Right. So the, the district court ruling found that the judiciary had misused some PACER funds from the fees that they collect. And it remanded the case. Um, but the, the parties, so the nonprofits that filed it, and the judiciary decided to not go forward with continuing um, litigation, and, and that's where this preliminary settlement agreement comes about. As someone you talked to said, you had nonprofits suing the federal court system in the federal court system. Did the nonprofits encounter any problems because of that unique situation? I mean, I don't know exactly, but I think, you know, as, as Deepak Gupta, um, who was the attorney for the nonprofits in this case, told me, this was just kind of an, an interesting scenario to have a case about the fees for, for the electronic court record system going through the court system. Just to, to see the, uh, the result in this case, I, I used Pacer to, to look at it. So it is kind of an interesting scenario to be challenging something that you're kind of using in the process. And the refunds, most people are going to get 100 cents on the dollar. That's some refund. Correct. The, the primary method of refunds would be automatic refunds for up to $350 for, for PACER fees in, during a certain time period. And that's 100 cents on the dollar. Um, and then after that, any users that paid more than that would get a, a proportional percentage of, of the remaining settlement. Advocates and lawmakers have called for PACER fees to be totally eliminated. I mean, after all, the public should be able to access these public records. But the judiciary has resisted that? The judiciary has resisted the legislation in Congress that would basically make PACER free for the public to use. You know, they say that it's not easy um, to to be able to, to do that. But Lawmakers are really pushing for more public access on the um, PACER system. And obviously this lawsuit only deals with PACER fees that were already paid, so it's, it's a little retrospective. But while the litigation was going on, you know, the, the judiciary did increase the threshold that people can access documents for free. So it was $15 before you had to pay per quarter. Now it's $30 before you have to pay per quarter. And uh, this litigation, uh, you know, made it out of the Senate Judiciary Committee and the House passed similar legislation. It hasn't passed this particular bill, this Congress, but it, it actually has passed this bill before. So that seems to be moving along while this litigation has is, is been ongoing. 
I also want to ask you, so Circuit Judge Levinsky-Smith, who's the first black jurist to serve as the chief judge of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, he was appointed by Chief Justice Roberts to serve as the newest chair of the Judicial Conference's executive committee. Is that a great honor or a lot of work? <laughs> well, I think I think it could be both. The executive committee is the senior most panel of the judiciary's policymaking body, which is the Judicial Conference, and the executive, you know, committee chair is the leader of that of that panel. So, um, past chairs of that panel include Merrick Garland, who was. Um, the chair of the panel while he was on the D.C. Circuit. So, I mean, he'll he'll ha- definitely have a role in the judiciary's policy and the responses to, to emergencies, too, which is partially what the executive committee deals with. And on judicial nominations, we're coming toward the midterms. We don't know what's going to happen after the midterms with the composition of the Senate. Do you see the judiciary chairman really pushing to get as many nominees through as he can? Well, the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, just had a hearing during the Senate recess, which is something that progressives had been calling for as a response to the hearings that Republicans had under Trump, also during recess periods. So that was for a Ninth Circuit nominee, several district court nominees. They breezed through the nominees pretty quickly. And I think there are calls for more of those hearings to happen. Thanks, Madison. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.